This episode is brought to you in part by Zondervan, publisher of The Perilous Fight, Overcoming Our Culture's War on the American Family, written and narrated by retired neurosurgeon and politician Dr. Ben Carson. Available now everywhere you get audiobooks. Dynamic Voices for a Diverse Church. This is Pass the Mic. What's up, everybody? This is Tyler Burns, host of Pass the Mic. You have joined us for another great episode where we have a special treat for you here at our podcast where we have Dynamic Voices for a Diverse Church. It's brought to you by the Reformed African American Network. As per usual, we're so excited to be joined, not just by our co-host, Jamar, which is always a pleasure, but to also be joined by two brothers who are excellent in their craft, excellent in pushing forward the conversation towards what they have coined progress evangelicalism. And those brothers are Adam Thompson and BJ Thompson. So we want you guys to tune in. Now, we must say beforehand, this was a phenomenal conversation. It was funny. It was exciting. But we were Google Hangouting. That's even a word. I just coined a term here. We were Google Hangouting from four different locations. Um, so the, the audio quality might be a little sketchy, might break up just a little bit, but we still thought that this would be just a great conversation to share with you guys because these guys have some nuggets and they also talk about some things that they're doing in the future to ensure that progressive evangelicalism gets in more ears, um, gets seen before more eyes and people are able to have more conversations about it. So we want you to sit back, listen and enjoy this conversation with Adam Thomason and B.J. Thompson, along with Jamar Tisby and myself, about progressed evangelicalism. Check it out. All right, well, greetings and God bless. Welcome to another episode of Pastor Mike Dynamic Voices for a Diverse Church, powered by the Reformed African American Network. I'm your host, as always, Tyler Burns, and my co-host, who is also the president of the Reformed African American Network, who is also a big deal in the evangelical world, as we have already established. Jamar Tisby, what's going on? What's good, man? I'm excited about today. Yes, we have a special treat for you guys. Also, we want to remind you to subscribe to us, rate and review us on iTunes, also on the Satchel app as well, if Android is your weapon of choice. And we have, as Jamar was saying, a special treat for you guys today. We have an interview with two gentlemen who are smarter than us, um, who have been <laughs> better looking. around some some ideas that we wanted to share with the people, the Pastor Mike people we thought you would find very interesting. And uh, that is B.J. Thompson and Adam Thomason. How you guys doing? Doing good. How you doing? Let's start with B.J. Both of you guys have actually been on the podcast, but just for people who do not know you and need a, a brief introduction, B.J., why don't you go ahead and tell them who you are, some background on you, and then, Adam, you can follow suit. Well, my name is B.J. Uh, Thompson. I serve as the director of Build a Better Us. Um, we serve couples and families. I'm also a speaker, um, and I'm a disciple maker. Um, thankful for my wife, Vanja. Been married for 14 years uh, this year, and we have three children. And I'm just honored to be here with you guys on Pastor Mike and uh, the Forum Network. So awesome. Yeah, so my name is uh, Adam Thomason. Currently, I uh, help out running Collision Records, uh, which is an indie hip hop label that puts out what I would say a crystal future world yeah. in the general market. And I'm an itinerant speaker. Yeah. On what we're about to talk about today and other things. And I'm finishing up my, uh, my doctorate in uh, education with a focus on slave trade, evangelicalism, and solidarity. That's the best part. Awesome. Well, you guys have been 
starting kind of these webisodes and talking on YouTube over the past few weeks. And I've been peeping all of them and been, been really encouraged and blessed by them. And it's on this topic that you guys have coined this concept of progressed evangelicalism. And from how you guys are explaining it and what you guys are saying, it seems like something that should kind of be pushed and proliferated um, to the broader evangelical world. But for those who may not understand, can you do two things? First of all, define what progressive evangelicalism is yeah. and contrast it with what people may think from the outset, which would be progressive evangelicalism. So yeah, can, you, yeah. can you draw the, the definition, but then also the contrast? Yeah, I'll delineate real quick between the two of progressive, and it's good to that. Progressive evangelicalism and progress. The reason why we didn't use the term progress because uh, I mean, progressive is because when you look at when you look at that term, it really stands for more liberalism and breaking away from orthodoxy. That's certainly what we're not trying to do. So we wanted a term that showed moving forward, but still attaching itself to the tenets of evangelicalism. So that's why we use progress. My man Tyler, he is a student, so he caught that, right? We throw that out there. Uh, I mean, I, I think that's absolutely accurate. I think you know one of the things. C.S. Lewis talks about is the definition of terms and the use of terms and the distortion of the time. Um, and so I think that even if we talk about the word progressive, progressive, a lot of times we attach um, a sense of distortion of morality. Um, when we talk about progress and the need for it, kind of to your question, Tyler, I mean, we, we need a, a more robust theology that can respond to not just white and black issues, but cultural and global issues. Um, that don't hide behind cliche phases, phrases, or um, supposed doctrines. And so, uh, yeah, so we began unpacking this phrase uh, when we stepped out on a limb um, because we just felt burdened um, and wanted to see a fuller expression of the gospel um, that can address issues of all kinds, not just issues of thought and theology. So when we look at the term progress, what we're saying is we're not trying to replace the orthodox, let's just say, strongly Eurocentric uh, narrative as it comes to evangelicalism. We're just trying to expand it and say there were more people who helped uh, foster and establish Christianity than those who tend to be talked about in a Eurocentric narrative, right, if that makes sense. Yeah, I'm glad you, because that was actually my next question. So when you say progress evangelicalism, naturally yeah. that would assume that maybe there's a deficiency within evangelicalism as we know it. But what you're saying is that it's not necessarily an, well, tell me, is there a deficiency at the core of evangelicalism? Because you guys were kind of talking about that on the last one, right? We were talking about that on the last broadcast yeah. where the father of evangelicalism as we know it within America said some things and did some things that we would say would be outside the pale for those of us who cling to the gospel, holistic gospel formation. So. Yeah. Yeah. Is there a problem at the core of evangelicalism, or just does it just need to be expanded? Yeah, so I would say I'm gonna I'm gonna be a <laughs> I'm gonna be the good cop. You know, come on, go ahead. I'll be the bad cop. Go ahead. I'm gonna say that uh, I think you term deficiency in a, in a good way, in the sense of it doesn't give the breath and full understanding. So, say for instance. And thinking about me and BJ's uh, talk yesterday, I felt like the Lord gave me a clear illustration. When Israel came out of Egypt, he didn't just want them to be free from Egypt. He needed them to be established in a framework, understanding, socially, 
laws, things of that nature. So that's why we had the Ten Commandments. That's why we had Leviticus. So when me, J, me and DJ were talking last night and overall about progressive evangelicalism, most evangelicals don't know when we were breaking away from the British, 1776, yeah. and then the Great Awakening was in 1750. That was progressing towards our quote-unquote exodus from the British thought. So we got to ask the question, okay, if that's true, then what was being established as our evangelical Ten Commandments? Yeah. Peter Whitfield, and he says, you know what? When it comes to slavery, they'll be equal in heaven socially, but we're called to do what? Proclaim the gospel. And I go, that was our Ten Commandments. And we ran with that. So there's a deficiency in not asking the right questions, if that makes sense. Absolutely. Yeah. So, bad cop, do you want to go ahead, bad cop? Why do I have to be the bad cop? I'm just a cop. Well, here's what I would say. I think that, um, you know, Adam and I talked about this last night in my podcast, man. Oftentimes, um, we villainize, um, you know, individuals or, you know, we assume them to be heroes and we skirt over the things. Um, that could be deficiency or even destructive to what has occurred. And so I think one of the things that is unnerving about um, some of the, the mistakes um, or some of the orthodoxy of some of the forefathers is we downplay the idea of human enslavement um, as if the, the image of God is to be downplayed at any point in time. And so when you see Jesus step into the scene, he challenges the religious leaders of the day. He challenges them with this notion. He said, which one of you on the Sabbath, if your animal were to fall, would not come to rescue it, right? Um, and he was contrasting it to the idea that they did not have an urgency or concern for the marginalized people, but they prioritized animals over them, right? So I don't think the 1700s is uh, the beginning of that. I think it's a renewal of a wrong thinking about gospel. And what we see Jesus doing when he steps into the New Testament after the time of silence, he is the incarnated word and he prioritizes people. And so the reason why it is not a quick overlook that Jonathan Edwards, that Whitfield and others made the mistake of, of dehumanizing people. Um, the reason why it's not a, a quick overlook or glance is because God has always prioritized people, called them to grace called to brotherly unity and called them to a picture of love that is to not be contrasted to anything in the world. And so I think sometimes the way we talk about it, um, we belittle the implications of what, it, what has occurred. But when you look forward even now um, and some of the, the current social issues, the reason why many of us struggle to feel like we should partake or even involve ourselves is because of that doctrine that was talked about in the 1700s. Jamar, go ahead, jump in. Sounds a lot like uh, a mentor to us all, Dr. Carl Ellis. And, you know, what he basically says is, like you all are saying, without moving on or jettisoning the solid biblical doctrines and truths that have been explained over the centuries by theologians, um, we we want to continue doing theology. He basically says there's more theology to be done. And what we receive, particularly from the reformers in the 16th and 17th centuries on up to the present, they're answering a specific set of questions. Mm -hmm. And in the way that they answered them, they were robust, they were largely biblical, and it was helpful. But there were a whole other set of questions, particularly, as you all are saying, are focused around uh, anthropology 
that weren't being asked and weren't being answered by theology. And so they, we, we need to continue to do theology, continue to progress in our understanding of the implications of the Bible for how we treat other human beings made in the image of God. There's this sort of protectionism uh, to say that, that you know, theology is not done. The, the, the misperception is, is, is that if theology is not done, then the theology we have is deficient in a sense that it's flawed and right. not complete, as you've just said. Yeah, that's good. And I, yeah. and I do want to make it a point because I'm big on uh, being fair to people's legacies. Uh, when we when we look at like a Edwards in the Great Awakening in the 1750, he himself was in the coming in the wake of you know the slave trade and the Dutch Reform, Portuguese Reform back to going back to 1444 and, and, and going forward, he himself was being caught up in a legacy. So I think I would, I would consider Edwards and the Whitfields kind of like a Nicodemus. They didn't, they didn't maliciously know what they were perpetuating. And I don't yeah. want to come across that they were Caiaphases in the sense of they maliciously didn't want uh, Jesus to rule them. So though they, though they perpetuated uh, uh, insufficient Imago Dei, someone saying not Imago Dei at all. I don't think it was the malicious intent of their hearts. I think it was the, the blinders of which they were swept up in. Right. Yeah. So we, but we have to have the courage to ask those questions still and not, and not make them heroes equal to Jesus. Well, you know, one thing I'm, I'm, I'm ambivalent about is, is even the need to, to qualify ourselves. I mean, here, here we spent the last five minutes saying, how much we value and respect the past. And I think even that in a certain perspective can be construed as, you know, it's a negative in the sense that yeah. we shouldn't as brothers in Christ, as people who, who, you know, are about the church, who are about doing good in the world. Why should we have to even have all these qualifiers? Can't we still yeah. that there's stuff still to be done from another perspective? without having our sort of biblical bona fides question, you know? Yeah, I think uh, part of the reason why, Jamar, and I think you're making a great point, um, I think it's because we know that oftentimes that which we which is foreign to us can easily um, be rejected, right? And so what we recognize even as we begin to unpack progress evangelicalism is that it's foreign, um, a scope of theology that in thought and practice responds to the needs of all humanity in a way that makes you uncomfortable. It's very foreign for many of us. Many of us grew up in segregated communities. Many of us have segregated lives. Many of us affirm what's true, but we've never had the collision of having to, let's see the shameless plug, Adam, collision. Yeah. Um, <laughs> but we've never had the, the, the real collision of people's lives and we don't know how to reconcile Baltimore. We don't know how to reconcile what's happening in Syria. We don't know how to reconcile what happened in Ferguson. And so I think part of the, the reason why we want to walk gently is because of that. It's so foreign. But, I, but I'm kind of on your side in this regard. I think that God is always trying to create discomfort among us. And he's trying to reform, reform us and conform us to the image of Jesus and not American patriotism. Nor is he trying to conform us to, you know, the first century's church. And so... I know he takes those things. And so we just want to get these claims as to what do we legitimately mean to, to make sure that there is, we are above reproach to the best of our ability. So it seems like it's two, two good cops and two bad cops. 
Who's the <laughs> hold on, hold on, who's the bad guy? <laughs> Me and Tyler. I'm undecided. I'm just gonna tell you, I'm undecided right now. I'm gonna admit. <laughs> and Tyler, y'all like, I don't see why we gotta qualify because the outside man, I'm an angry fuck. black man, apparently. But that's my point, right? Like, so, so you got to think about the the medium and the messenger. So, so that if certain people were to say, "Hey, we need to have progressive evangelicalism," blase, blase, go on with it. Uh, their credibility wouldn't necessarily be challenged. But when you have, you know, four black men, yeah, about it, then you know, it's a good work. Visions of a different or strange fire, you know kind of come out and and yeah. i just think that's something to point out that's not what we gotta yeah. you know spend all our time talking about but the fact that yeah. you know every presentation i do every blog post i write uh when i know that i'm going to have um you know a decent sized audience that's from the mainstream from yeah. the white majority i feel like i gotta say okay 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 i'm saying all this stuff but i'm still you know faithful to absolutely all absolutely. that absolutely. So just to think about no it's good Okay, so let me ask you guys this. So in, in the webisodes, you talked about you talked about solidarity. You talked about what true justice means. You talked about gospel fluidity. And it seems like you're, you're slowly building this lexicon of tools. So if progress evangelicalism is a tool belt, you know, what are the tools? Like, what are some of the tools that people need to have and think through to accomplish what you guys are talking about? Yeah. Um, Adam, you want to go? You want me to go? Yeah, I'll go. And then you get you, you can okay. So I think the first thing I would say the first thing that you're gonna hear from me is a uh, a full historical narrative when it comes to our present. Mm. We take face value uh, what's been told to us when it comes to church history. Um, yesterday we talked about the need for adding like guys like Frederick Douglass to the conversation, and I'm not just saying conversation. I say in any seminary you go southeastern Baptist theological southern. DTS, you name the seminary, I have a problem with that a guy like Frederick Douglass isn't part of mainstay curriculum. Yeah. So, so that's the that's the progressed part. We need to progress with pushing major. Lemuel Haynes, the London Charles, right? Yeah. Like why we not why, why aren't those guys there? So if it's a tool belt, I think Christians holistically, not just blacks or whites, but Christian holistically they don't understand history like global history, world history. They haven't traveled. They don't know the right questions to ask. They take things as stage uh, value. So that's the first thing I would say, BJ. Okay. Yeah. So, I mean, if the question is what are the tools, but I think, you know, before we start talking about tools, we have to start talking about assessment. Um, and, and that's really the reason why we're going back, right? Um, you know, one of the things that's damaging is to go to the doctor and say, I'm sick. You're sick what? What do you mean you're sick? What What's wrong with you? Are you having a headache? You know, you nauseated. Um, what what is it that you're feeling, right? And I think oftentimes we don't do a great, uh, good enough job of assessing where we are, and we just prescribe medication. And so, again, that's where you get the cliches, the one-liners. If you you would just do this, this would be better. Um, and what we recognize with Jesus, and even with the gospel, in order to apply it in the appropriate, mature way, we have to do an exegesis of culture. We have to do an exegesis of history. And then we have to look at what does, um, then we have to look at and see what does God say, um, in the midst of all those things. And so what I would say is the ideas that, that of tools, um, starts with assessment. 
And then once we've assessed kind of where are we historically, where are we in terms of biblical theology, then we can look at Jesus. Then we look at the keys. And then once we erase our last thing, our cultural boundaries, you know, one of the things that is very difficult, Tyler, is that we've been taught to only look through life through one narrative. Mm-hmm. When God has a when God has a global community, not just reflected in church history, human history, but especially biblical history. Mm-hmm. And so we have to begin to talk about those things explicitly, and then we can get into the various uh, things that are happening. Yeah, yeah. I'm, about to, I'm about to be like Adam. I was about to tell you to run that back. <laughs> run that back. Run that back. <laughs> right, let me take you back on that. So I would say uh, people, you know, looking for my A types, looking for a list, you know. So I would actually say. <laughs> Having having a having a his, uh, 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 a fuller understanding of world history, like DJ said, human history, uh, church history, I would say because the slave trade was so pivotal to what we're under, understanding the slave trade and the theological, political, social implications of that. That's one. Two, understand what it means to be subjective and opinionated, and objective and historical. Mm. And no, no, on that back. Run that That's back. Good. Oh man. Run that back. Understanding the ability to delineate between opinionated and subjectivity and objective and historical because you have to either submit or reject objectivity. And I think Christians in the social media generation were which is horrible at being objective in research, right? So that's why I'm finishing up this doctorate to say, um, look, like these are our objective things. These are quoted, respectable uh, sources that we're looking at, right? So then that leads to justice. I think justice, when you look at justice in a democracy standpoint, a lot of us see justice from, hey, who do I call to get it done versus a biblical understanding of it was upon me to make it right if man missed it. Yes. That's yes. a huge tool. And now if we go back to, to Whitfield, that's why you have guys like Whitfield who came in the framework of these other Puritans before him who could easily say, Oh, gotta make them that gotta make them socially equal in heaven. That's not our job. Our job is just preaching the gospel because they didn't see justice as their responsibility. Yeah. yeah. Right. So those are some things I would say as far as like tools. Let me get I one mean, other tool. Let me can I get one one last tool? Yeah. And then back. So so the, the one of the tools that I, I know um is very difficult to identify is the difference between personal attitudes and systemic change, right? I think mm. even as we talk about these things, you know, one of the things that Jesus is challenging us on, he wasn't challenging the people of his day to change their personal attitude towards the, the poor. He was challenging them in the system that they had created that marginalized the poor, right? I think one of the issues that we see in our day and time is that even as I hear people speak and talk and give sermons, and even write books about this, they always reference the personal attitude of the individual with never assessing the system or challenging in those things, right? And so when Jesus looks at Matthew 9, he says he saw a people who were oppressed and they were like sheep without a shepherd and they were being harassed. He wasn't just talking about his personal attitude. He was talking about a system of caring for people that didn't care for people, right? And so I think one of the tools that we can begin to utilize in progressive evangelicalism is that it is, you have the responsibility not to just have a changed heart, but you have a responsibility to begin to a- examine the system 
that creates the oppression in the lives of other individuals. Again, hence the world system. Hence, um, we don't wrestle against flesh and blood, but a principalities. Why? Because it's a system that you're fighting. It's not just your individual um, perspective. That's great. Mm -hmm. And I, I think what really resonates about what you guys saying is in, in recent times, especially with events like uh, the killing of Trayvon Martin, Mike Brown, and the plethora of similar events, what a lot of people in general and Christians in particular are looking for is a theology and a faith robust enough to not only speak to issues of personal salvation or personal morality, but but to speak to issues of systemic injustice, um, whether that be uh, issues with law enforcement, mass incarceration, poverty, uh, water, <laughs> you know, yes. you name it. And, mm -hmm. and so I think what resonates with people is, is the fact that you guys are going back to the Bible and you're saying, look, the Bible does speak to this. We, we may not have been asking these same questions all along, but it doesn't mean that the Bible is silent about it. I think I think one other aspect that's important to remember is that um, white evangelicals have been, in certain ways, concerned about systemic injustice. It's yeah. just which injustices they've been concerned about. Oh, don't do it. I'm just the best. Adam, you was right. Adam, you was right. You need to run that back. Hey, man. So, so one, one of my professors, Sean Lucas, uh, a white Presbyterian pastor um, in Mississippi, uh, is very progressed in his own way. He presented the personal resolution on civil rights remembrance at the PCA General Assembly, has done lots of, of great things in his uh, uh, church history classes. He presented a paper at the uh, LDR weekend, which is a conference um, happening in St. Louis over Labor Day weekend. Uh, happened last year is where he gave this paper. And he talked about the the idea of the spirituality of the church, hmm. which was a theology they, they they that always has prevalence whenever you're talking about issues of racial justice. And then what spirituality of the church says is the church's mission to preach the gospel and to evangelize and to have all these spiritual things and not to be involved in these social issues. Well, his his angle in the paper is to say that well that wasn't always true if you look at issues like prohibition or teaching evolution in schools or prayer in schools, the way that evangelicals approached those issues was through systemic means. They were Absolutely. trying to change the laws and the policies and the systems where they didn't practice that, however, mm. consistently been in regards to issues concerning race. Right. And so mm. it's important that Christians and white evangelicals have always talked about systemic justice, but it hasn't always been the issues that pertain to minorities. Yeah. Yeah. Come on, Tyler, be the bad cop. <laughs> let, me, let me let me ask you this question. So, you know, as we talk about something like a, a Black History Month and something like, you know, ethnic specific em embracing and how do we properly embrace and interpret our own culture? So, you know, like you guys were talking about was this narrative and this concept that, you know, we've only been exposed to one narrative and you guys have even said in certain you know, avenues, and I've heard other people say it, that the constant um, reinforcing of maybe a deficiency in the African-American narrative or in the narrative of peoples of color, even within the church, yes. to say that most of these people weren't solid, most of these people weren't worthy of celebrating, most of it was emotionalism. Yes. So how do we appreciate our own culture 
yeah. and our own heritage, especially in light of some of these public celebrations like a Black History Month. Yeah. 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 So can I can let me let me have on this because I want to I want to interject a person that that is getting a lot of heat and rightfully so, Stacey <laughs> Depp, right? So. <laughs> oh, my Hey, 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 Stacey was going to be joining us today. I thought you were a good cop. I thought you were a good cop. <laughs> so, so, hey, you know, like, so, her, so here's, here's the thing where I go, Stacey, you, you missed it, sister. When, when you're talking about getting rid of Black History Month, yeah. right, even if someone threw you a bone, your understanding needs to expand and say, no, the Black history is American history. And the problem is, is that we have separated from the historical global narrative. And that's why it is in the most. So I'll be part of the people that's saying um, that, you know what? We built this country. Yes. Right? We built this country. And when you think, if you think of American history right now, you, you would come out of Thomas Jefferson, George Washington, right? The, the American Revolution, Abraham Lincoln, free, freeing us you know, lowly black folks who did, right? We're not talking about like the history of people of color who helped change this nation, right? Wow. So that's why I'm big on history and, and people understand it from a global perspective. Like a lot of a lot of people of color don't, don't even know that before British passed the act in 1807 to abolish the slave trade and it was finalized in 1833. A lot of people don't know in Haiti in 1804, those right. were the Slaves, people of color who actually rose up and got their freedom, just from a historical standpoint. And then Brit, Brit, uh, Britain, the Europeans followed suit. Yeah. Right? So it's those, it's those things, right, that when, when we look at it, like, we need to understand that there's a bigger story in a, in a, in a bigger uh, narrative. And yeah. Yeah. I think um, I've heard people, you know, ask me online about this, you know, Hey man, BJ, why why do we have to talk about Black History Month? And I, and I think it's for this reason. It's the same reason within a diverse family of siblings, um, whether that be you know two girls, three boys, that each individual is acknowledged for their uniqueness as a part of one Come family, on, right? And Come I on, think God. that part of the reason that's why we love Cinderella stories, right? She is a sister, but she is not equal. And, and when we see her living in the oppression of her stepsisters, something inside of us screams for justice. That's wrong. That's evil. Right. And so when I look at the narrative and, and similarly to what Adam is alluding to, I mean, the narrative of American history as we know it and as we all have learned, not just a few of us, black, white, Hispanic, Asian, whatnot, we all learn American history that highlights and accentuates European contributions and with little to say that the Japanese, the African, yeah. the Afghani, and all the other immigrants, even the Native Americans, have actually built and contributed in a way that honors um, that culture. And so I think it's important for us to pause and do that because it's such a gross over, over um, statement. One quick thing, uh, Glenn Beck did something not long ago. Well, you bring up Glenn Beck. Watch it. <laughs> no, well, this is Stacey good. Glenn Beck, man. Yeah, hey, we, we're doing it. Cultural relevance, right? <laughs> Glenn Beck brought up something, and they were going back through and actually studying history outside of the textbook. And they were looking in paintings, and he was like, you see this man, this dark man that's next to him? He helped win the American Revolution. You see this guy here? He mm -hmm. um, helped, you know, create this type of trade. 
Because I think the way that we communicated Black, again, socially constructed, but it's meaningful and it has origins in continents and different people groups. We have assumed that they have not been substantial in all types of American events. And so, again, I think the reason why we need to pause is to remember that. But we do, as a culture, as a nation, we need to grieve what has occurred. And, and kind of to what your point earlier, Jamar, part of the reason why I think that we scapegoat or deflect when it comes to the issue of race in America is because it creates a sense of shame and we're unwilling to grieve. We're unwilling to acknowledge and we're always deflecting and we're always finding a reason and we always justify because something inside of us can't, we don't know the power of the gospel that could mm. transform us in the face of real racial oppression and systems. So that's what I would say. So, you know, every, everybody gets to, you know, cl- close to the end and they want to know, okay, great. So how do we do this? <laughs> I, I want to hear your thoughts, Adam, and your thoughts, DJ, because we yeah. in this, this certain kind of theology that's not necessarily speaking to the issues that you're bringing up, yeah. how do we sort of transcend or, or build on that system, I should say, and, and do this progressive evangelical? Mm. First, I would say one is that you gotta, you gotta do your research and your homework. And, and what I say, what I mean by that is you gotta, yes. you gotta get degrees. Not that you need them in God's economy to be listened to, but you need them in the way that God has allowed man's economy to be set up. And so that's why I'm finishing my doctorate. From that, um, you see places like Texas in a negative way, how they have passed and lobbied for the historical books to be rewritten for slaves to no longer be slaves, but to have come over as indentured servants. So for people watching saying, is it ideal and and this far-fetched idea to get history books changed? No, it's not. And I think there needs to be a commitment to those who are uncovering this objective history to say, no, this needs to be changed. The Eurocentric historical narrative that's to be perpetuated forward in public schools, private schools, in the seminaries, it needs to stop. And we have collectively done the research in the history to do so. So we see that it's happened. We see that it's possible. So I would say, Jamar, man, you got to do your research. You got to get, got to get your, you know, your degrees. And at, at the same time, we got to come together and say, like, enough's enough. Yeah. That's my, that's my initial first thought. Good. Yeah. Um, so what I would say is, how do you make things real? I think one, I think, you know, the Bible says, um, God opposes the proud, but exalts the humble, right? Um, and I think that we are only willing to be humble in particular arenas. Um, hence the kind of the, the, the foolish arguments online, right? Um, God has called us all to be humble and all to be clay in his hand. And so I think especially as we deal with these things, we need to be more clay, uh, not presumptuous. And um, I love what Adam was saying earlier. He said not being subjective, opinionated, but being objective and historical. Right. Because um, a lot of times we are flying off of things that we've heard in the past, and, you know, all kind of stereotypes are just popping up. But we really don't know. And, and it's obvious once you study history that people really yeah. don't know. You realize why. Wait, you never really read this before. You're just kind of like repeating what you've always heard. Second thing I, I think to recognize, God is trying to create a global community of equals and brothers yeah. and sisters. He's not trying to create the best of the brightest of this particular race. And I think because of that, you know, especially my Caucasian brothers and sisters, they don't see themselves as a part of a larger group. 
They see themselves as individuals. And what I'm saying is we are a global community. And once you see, like First Corinthians says, my hand is hurting, it's not your job to tell your hand to shut up, right? It says that I can't say to the hand, I don't need you. Um, and you're not to respond with the haughty, ungodly perspectives that we picked up from this world system. And so I think one of the practical things is let's be humble learners. You know, and for my, my, my minority brothers and sisters, be patient. You know, sometimes I have people ask me really crazy questions online or in person, and I gently respond to them, but I get that they, they don't know what they've never seen it. Um, and so I'm really patient with them because I genuinely love them. And my desire is to see unity. My desire isn't just to see quality. Right. That's good. And on, on that point, just piggybacking on that, that's where we come up with the term solidarity. That, and I, I knew the good cop was going to return and you be Come back. on, bring him back. He's <laughs> coming back. He's resurrected. He's hey, resurrected. you know, because when you talk about solidarity, it's that John 17, one, right? And and I think the problem, let's just start, take modern day. When we see the, the Mike Gardner's and the Tamir Rice's and the Mike Brown, solidarity simply means not giving a theological and social conclusion, just saying, hey, simply, you lost your son. This has been a historic problem for people of color. I stand with you in saying, I hurt. That's hurtful. That's and that, that's what I feel like the, the, the evangelicals has, have missed. They don't simply know how to stand in solidarity and just say, you know what? I'm sorry. And here are my tears. Here is my presence in public. Yeah. In yeah. Public. Wow. You're absolutely right. Tyler, I think it's safe to say this is the start of a conversation. Yeah. So that's what I was going <laughs> Okay. So, so we know where we're going as we close. Where are yeah. y'all going? When's the book coming out? When's the podcast? When's the, when's the video series? Come on, Adam. Exactly. Hey, well, yeah. Hey, let's do it. I'm, I'm going out there. So me, me and DJ actually are working on what we call a spoken word preaching uh, musical project um, that's talking about like this progressive evangelicalism, Jesus, all these narratives. And our hope is to release that this year. So it's going to be a musical project, first of its kind. Yeah. Coming up this year, we're going to do promos. We're trying to marry... Uh, if the music industry and promotion came together with the, the robust teachings that you hear from the pulpit and seminaries, wow. it would be this project. So we're working on that right as we now it's out there. Yo, I'm so glad. I'm so glad y'all uh, have decided to partner with the Reformed African American. Hey, uh, we are just humbled to be on board with what y'all are doing. Hey, hey. <laughs> Me and BJ call ourselves the the, uh, the the spiritual evangelical outcast. You know what I'm saying? Like, hey, we got room for you under this tent. Baby. Come on. <laughs> there it is. Yeah, there it is. Yeah. Man, thank you guys so much for joining us. Um, this progressive evangelicalism concept has encouraged me, and I know it's encouraging a lot of of uh, young evangelicals, you know, of all ethnicities, to think thoroughly and holistically about the gospel and what it means. And so we thank you guys so much for joining us. Where can they follow you on Twitter? Um, and where do you want them to follow you online as yeah. you guys continue this conversation? Yeah, they, they can hit me up at, at BJ116 on Twitter. Um, and you can just search BJ Thompson. And uh, yeah, check me out this year. Yeah, so uh, at Red Rev, R-E-D-R-E-V. And their website is IamRedRev.com. Uh, 
you know, and then we got to come up with a name for DJ and myself when we release our music, right? Uh, partnership with Ray and Hashtag together, you know what I'm saying? Yeah, that's right. Yes, sir. Let's leave it to y'all creative. <laughs> awesome. Thank you guys so much. Right. You can also follow um, us on Twitter as well, at Jamar Tisby and at Burns23. And follow the podcast, Pass the Mic, at underscore Pass the Mic on Twitter as well. Thank you guys so much for joining us. No, thanks for and having us. We look us. forward to seeing you again on the next Pass the Mic. Pass the Mic. All right. This episode is brought to you in part by Ministry Pivot with Russell St. Bernard. This podcast features important conversations with industry leaders such as Nona Jones, Bishop Walter Scott Thomas, Reverend Dr. Nicole Martin, and so many more. Visit ministrypivot.com or on all streaming platforms.